Father, we come to you this morning asking for your help and direction as we seek to make your word clear and understandable. And um, we try to grow in our knowledge of what you have for us to, to apply to our hearts, Lord. We need your help and we need you to move in us mightily. Um, we know without your help there is no hope for us. And so we ask for just understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is um, three times. He says that he's going to suffer and die and then rise again. And uh, all along the way, the disciples are struggling with that. They don't understand uh, that, and they are dealing with it. And so uh, we kind of got to this place where we are now, uh, which is the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, he's been leading up to that. He's saying it's coming, and now it's here. It is Passion Week, and uh, you probably heard it called that, which has the Latin word that's tied to suffer, or Holy Week. Uh, you may have heard it called that. In some churches, uh, they prepare for that, and, and, and they have services surrounding that, those things. And so um, that's where we are in Mark, and it's uh, interesting. If you're studying it, you think, well, there's a lot of time spent in that, that time period, but that's central to the reason he came. And so that's why we look at that and we see that. So in uh, coming up, we're going to go, he's going to take three trips into Jerusalem. We're going to look at two of those today. And uh, that will help you as you think about it. Uh, we're going to start on Sunday and then go uh, uh, and, and move through from that point on. So you'll just see that as we're kind of going through. And then with the second visit, there's going to be these two bookends. Uh, and on those bookends will be this story, this object lesson about uh, this kind of parable about a fig tree. And then the last little portion that we'll deal with is just kind of like, what does it mean to, for a, the fig tree that was unfruitful? What would that look like for a tree to be fruitful? I mean, that's kind of the way I, I don't know, the way I think about it. And so uh, I think it's important to, to understand that. Now, why would the temple be such a big deal, going into Jerusalem and then uh, to the temple? Why is that such a big thing? Um, if you were to study the book of Exodus, uh, one author that I really like, his last name is Roberts, he says um, the book of Exodus can be broken down into three sections. The God who delivers, the God who demands, and the God who draws near. And uh, the God who delivers is the one who guides them out of, uh, they exit uh, Egypt, uh, and he saves them with his uh, mighty power. The God who demands is all the commandments and statutes and rules for living. And then the God who uh, draws near is through the sacrificial system. It's like, how can this holy God interact with sinful people? And so that's what you see in the tabernacle and the temple. So the temple is a place where there's sacrifices. And these sacrifices are about sinful people, again, drawing near to a holy God. And they're going to do that. Every year they're going to celebrate Passover, and there will be this animal, a lamb, that will be a substitute for the people. And so you see that over and over again. Now, just so you know, and you're thinking about how the Bible fits together, the law covenant that is... Uh, that has kind of guided Israel along. Galatians will talk about it. It is a temporary covenant until the new covenant comes. The new covenant is inaugurated by Jesus Christ. 
And so when you're looking at this, you understand that old temple system is about to pass and the new is about to come to fruition. And so at the heart of this, you have this willing substitute who is offering his life and this new temple is emerging and everything is about to change. And so I want you to know that because Jesus is going into Jerusalem, he keeps going to the temple, and it's at the heart of the worship of the people, all that's about to change, and you're going to see the corruption of it, and then the transformation that's taking place. So I want to read Hebrews 10, if you're new to the Bible, and you don't really know that much about how uh, sacrifices worked, or why there was Old Testament sacrifices, or the what they ultimately did, and all that kind of stuff. Hebrews 10 kind of helps you. So listen to 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he uh, above or he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to you, do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that's just helpful for you. When you're looking at this, we're going to the temple, and Jesus is going to uh, show us what you might say, uh, the the temple empty, that's the way I would see it, then the temple condemned, followed by the temple illustrated, and then you'll see the new temple. That's kind of the way I think about it. So hopefully that'll help you as you go. Okay? So let's look at verses 1 through 6 here. Uh, Jesus is going to enter. It's often called the triumphal entry. On Sunday, he's going to come from Bethany, about two miles away. They're going to travel in. Um, he's going to come in on a, uh, a colt. And you can, uh, if you study that, you'll, you'll kind of see that. And we're, we're not going to read every part of this passage today. But basically he says, hey, go get a colt. Go to this particular place. Go get it. Bring the colt back. And uh, if somebody asks you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs it. And so it, it's a cult that's never been ridden, kind of holy and sanctified, set apart. And he's going to, um, uh, Jesus is going to ask them to go and get this cult. And so they're gonna, going to do that uh, at this, and it's going to be this time during this annual feast that is taking place. Now, the people are always thinking about, every year when they go here, uh, they would think about deliverance. And it wouldn't just be deliverance from Egypt, uh, but deliverance from uh, the nation that kind of had taken over them at this point, the Roman Empire, they want deliverance. And so they're thinking about that in this, this particular time. And Passover always brings that up because it was the time when the Lord struck the firstborn of all of Egypt and then they got to go out. With You know, God guides them out. Well, in this section, when you're looking at it, you have to think too, they might have forgotten what the Passover also meant, which was that the sacrifice uh, that was made uh, there was a sacrificial lamb that was a substitute for them. It wasn't because they weren't, weren't sinners. They were sinners just like the others. They just happened to have a substitute that stood in their place. And so uh, that's another aspect of this where you say they kind of sometimes have a tendency to forget it's not just about the earthly thing, 
but this heavenly thing, God's punishment was upon them, and the only way that they got to escape was because of the blood of the sacrifice. And so uh, Passover should have meant not only you know, saving them from Egypt, but also saving them from God's wrath, the angel of death coming uh, to, to, to come and like, execute judgment. So again, this is often called the, the triumphal entry. It's a little bit interesting because it doesn't seem that triumphant. And it doesn't last that long. And it doesn't seem like one of those things where the whole city... When you think about some king coming into a city, especially uh, highlighting his greatness and all that kind of stuff, you don't think of it this way. Uh, this does fulfill uh, Zechariah 9.9, speaking of that. It was something that a king would do. But again... Uh, it's not, uh, it's, Jesus actually sets this up. Usually when you see an inauguration of something type, you know, it's this big lavish celebration. And this would have been uh, somewhat small. Uh, it is fitting, but it is small. And so when it's time, Jesus gets on the colt, they lay the cloaks across uh, the colt's back, and then uh, people begin to lay their cloaks down in front of where Jesus would walk, and also bring the palms in and put those before them. And so all of this is going on. It's spread before them, and they begin to shout, which I think is at the heart of this. Look at verse 9. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you have to say, what is Hosanna all about? Which you may have studied this week. It could be like, oh, save us now. Or save us, we pray, O oh Lord. It's kind of a, it's a sign of like uh, saying like salvation has come, and we are agreeing with God about this salvation. Another kind of ironic thing about it is it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All this tied to Psalm 118. Uh, you could see it like said uh, in one way, uh, which one author, Meyer, says, is uh, blessed is the worshiper who comes in the name of the Lord, but Jesus is doing something far greater here. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, embodying all that uh, God is, and he is embodying that before us. The third thing you see is this quotation here is um, it, when you're looking at it and you're thinking like, okay, he's coming in the name of the Lord, but it says in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So there's something even greater going on here where they're saying like, the king has come. The king has come. So you would think that like, man, this would shock the whole world, but again, it's not as big as you think it should be. It's, it's like, a, but they're saying, blessed is the one who's reestablishing God's rule and reign. It's a huge kind of demonstration that's going on here that they would be delivered over and rescued. And so, um, but what's missing here, like if you're looking at it, is you don't see a repentant people. Um, you see them thinking, again, everybody's kind of thinking about Rome and not about him saving them from their sins. And so that's kind of at the heart of what's going on. It's not as big as it should be to us. And so verse 11 comes, he enters in, and what you see is uh, Jesus goes to the temple, and guess what? He's alone. It's like there was a loud like cry and, and excitement, all that kind of stuff, and now Jesus is all alone. He's like sitting there uh, all alone in the temple, and he's just looking at it. It's like he's taking a moment to consider all that it is. He's all by himself. All the crowds are gone. 
All the enthusiasm that was uh, temporary is gone. And he's empty. In this place where it's beautiful, but it's kind of like uh, what Jesus had said before. You know, it looks so beautiful, but inside it's filled with deadness, kind of. Like you think about where he said, uh, the outside might look like a whitewashed tomb, but on the inside it's filled with dead men's bones. There's something about it where you're like, this thing is, is empty. And so I would see this as like the temple empty. There's something about it all that's just saying, ah, this is not what you would imagine it to be. And then the next part is like the temple condemned. Some people call this like cleansing of the temple, but I would say it's more like condemning of the temple. Jesus is going to go back. He exits again, um, and he's going to exit the city afterwards. This is on a Monday. And we're going to take a break. We're just going to go straight to verse 15. I want you to see that, and then we will uh, go and look at the fig tree. But look at verse 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So when you're looking at that, you know, there's four sections in the temple, a very large section called the court of the Gentiles where this would be going on, something like 500 yards long and 325 yards wide. And there's like 35, so it's like 35 acres. Uh, if you think about this property and you go back to the grassy part back there, the little field, all of it's like five acres. So you just like put 7x, you know, to that. You say it's like 35 acres. There's a lot going on there. It's massive. It's overseen by the Sanhedrin and in and so uh, they're kind of watching over the proper worship patterns and that kind of thing. Uh, during Passover, uh, Josephus says there was 255,600 lambs sacrificed in AD 66, which were not there yet, but after the temple was fully completed, there were 255,000. That's a lot, don't you think? A lot of things going on there. And so the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles were coming, and Jesus walks in there, and um, at one part you could say, well, he's cleansing the temple from unjust like business practices, like improper worship that's going on. But the, um, and that may be kind of what somewhat common. And then even in that time, they would think, well, maybe he was just going to the court of the Gentiles and getting all those dirty Gentiles out of here. You know, like, get them out. They don't deserve to be here. But verse 17 uh, through 19, you see there's something going on there He's not only, I mean, before that, he was driving these people out. Probably not all 35 acres, you know, of people are driven out in that moment. But, um, but he is driving them out. He's driving out those who are buying and those who are selling. It seems like not just getting on to the sellers, but getting on to everyone, kind of, in a way, or, 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 or doing away with something. That's kind of the way I would see it. But anyway, in 17 through 19, he says, like, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Instead of running out the Gentiles... For all nations. Everybody's supposed to be able to come here and pray. And instead, they've corrupted it and made a, it a den of robbers, is what he says. And so, you know, of course, the leadership are like, we got to get rid of this guy. He's going to ruin the whole business. You know, 255,000, that's a pretty big, that's a lot of sacrifices, you know, and there's a lot of business that was going on there. And so, Jesus is going to speak to them. He's going he's going to say, look, this is supposed to be a place of worship, and it's not just for the Jews, but it's for everybody. 
in a way, and, and like I said, I really think when you're looking at this, uh, it's important to see that. It's important to think in terms of like, it was not supposed to be commercialized. It was not supposed to have a lot of financial mishandling going on. Um, it was for the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Jews. All those things are true. But what you want to come away with and say, I think, is he's showing the corruption and the insufficiency of the temple. It's, it's corrupted, but not only that, it's insufficient, like we read in Hebrews 10. It can't really deal with our sin. It was temporary. And when Jesus showed up, He's showing in His inaugural kind of address here, as He's coming in there, He is showing that it will come to an end. It, it, is, it had its place, but it had been corrupted. It's flawed though, but it still had its place, but not anymore. So I would say, we're looking at Jesus in the temple and we say, the temple is empty. There's like this empty celebratory nature to it. The temple is condemned because it was something that was both flawed and temporary. And then I would say it's like it's illustrated. So let's look at that fig tree for a moment. A lot of people, and even the earliest commentator uh, that we know of or whatever, he said this is like a parable. It's an enacted parable. Um, it's like an object lesson, the fig tree. And so that might help you just when you think about it, like, oh, what's, what's going on with the fig tree? Everybody that reads that, my kids are reading it. Uh, in a Sunday school class I was in this morning, they read it, and they're like, uh, why does Jesus hurt trees? Like, do you have something against trees? Is he like Carl? No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, sorry, Carl. But, uh, I mean, Carl cuts down trees. Well, he doesn't actually do it, but he likes to see them, like, cut down. But, um, and I understand, Carl. But he plants them back. He's a farmer, right, Carl? Okay. But in this kind of thing, you're like, no, Jesus is not mad at fig trees in general. Although, this, he created this tree, and this tree is, like, rebelling. It's a bad tree. It's rebelling against, like, it looks real pretty but it's not doing what it was intended to do, which was to grow fruit. And so, what's going on is, uh, it's a parable, and you say, well, what's the parable? Well, what's inside this parable? Well, if you were to do a little outline, you would say, outline A1, and then you would have B, and then A2. That would be the pattern. You would say, we started with a little parable, then we talk about the temple, and then we fi finish up with a little parable. You know, it's like bookends. The parable's like a little bookend. The heart of it is the temple. Well, the question then would be, what's unfruitful? The temple. I mean, that's what you'd say. The temple. The temple is unfruitful. Verse 12 through 14, as you're looking at it, Jesus was hungry. There's this great leafy tree there, this fig tree. He goes up to the tree. It's not the season of figs, but a lot of people would say, yeah, but this was like during the... Um, spring and so there would be these little uh, fig-like pieces that people would eat and uh, they could eat them before like they were in full kind of time to harvest you know and so you could eat them these little fig kind of knops they call them a uh, pagum that might be the way to say that but you could eat them and some people say hey that's what's kind of going on he was going up there the tree looked great and if you've ever been in, like maybe you've grown something in your house and you had these great plants that didn't like, tomatoes are great like that. They'll look really good, and then you're like, where are the tomatoes, you know? And I've wanted to curse tomato plants. I don't know if you have. But anyway, 
There's this leafy fig tree, and it doesn't uh, produce fruit. And so the curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment on the temple. That's the way you would see that. And you look at verse 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. It was withered of its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And um, if you think about that, there's a passage in Jeremiah 8, verse 13. You can make a little note. And it speaks of uh, that there were no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And it's kind of like this pointing to, like, there's something broken here. Uh, And so, with things that are in rebellion and not doing what they're supposed to do, they fall under the curse. So that something greater can show up here. Jesus is purging the temple. And it's a correct act, and He's showing that in display with this fig tree. Um, It's like the, the fig tree, its function is withered from the roots, so that like, kind of like that there'll be no stone of the temple left, there's not going to be anything left of this fig tree. That's the way that it symbolizes these things. And so it's helpful for you to see that. Now, then you get to a place, though, and you go, okay, what in the world? Jesus' response is hard. This is where I would say we've illustrated that what's going to happen to this, the Jewish, the heart of the Jewish worship system. But then, like, Jesus is ushering in a new temple. He's ushering in a new temple. And guess what? It's going to be fruitful. It's not going to be like that bad fig tree. It's going to be a fruitful tree. Really? I mean, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's going to be fruitful. And guess what? You're a part of it. Did you know that? That's a pretty cool idea. That you're like a, a fruitful tree. Like that we're, we're confident that you're going to be fruitful. That you're going to produce fruit. The new covenant is all about you producing fruit. So Jesus says, have faith in God. Everything's changing. Everything's changing. And um, genuine faith will be a part of what happens under the new covenant. Because hearts are changed. Hearts are changed. People don't just um, do things externally. There's an interior change. They're born again. Their hearts are transformed. And so Jesus says, have faith in God. Trust in Me. Don't have misplaced trust in external things. You trust in Me. I'm going to bring about the transformation that needs to take place. That's why He could say, I will destroy this temple, speaking of His body, uh, and in three days I will build another. He's going to come forth and He's going to be Uh, transformed he's going to bring about a change so faith is a gift certainly but faith is to be cultivated that's the heart of christian worship is you believing and trusting without faith the bible says it's impossible to please god it is not like god is asking for a lot jesus said if you had a mustard seeds kind of worth of faith then you could move mountains and so he says um just just trust me. That's going to be at the heart of entering into this new uh, temple. You're going to enter in by faith. Verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up uh, and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says, well, it will come to pass, it will be done. This may be him looking from the Mount of Olives over at the Temple Mount and saying that where he's going to take this and do away with this thing. 
and then usher in something new. But it also has this, these ramifications for us where you say, you need to learn to believe. That's at the heart of this new temple as you're trusting in uh, the Messiah, the hope that God has for His church that He's establishing for the family, for this body. Verse 24, Therefore I tell you the truth. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have, that you have received it, and it will be yours. I, I think this is important. Because at the heart of, what did he just say about the temple? It's supposed to be a place of prayer. What's at the heart of faith? If you really believe, you will be a praying person. That's important to say. If you really believe, you will pray. Because you believe that God is the one who does these things. He is the one that rescues us. We certainly would say, you got to say, we pray according to God's will. Even Jesus, who said this, prayed for something and said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We have, there's a level of humility here. Not my will, but yours be done. But we do so in faith, trusting God and doing as He would have us do. So at the heart of this new temple is faith in God, prayer towards God, genuine prayer. And then verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. At the heart of the Christian gospel, at the heart of the temple message was like you come here for forgiveness. When this new temple comes together, forgiveness from God and forgiveness towards other people is at the heart of becoming a Christian. It's to understand that you come into this place where you're reconciled to God. That's the heart of the new covenant in the new temple is that you, you come by faith, you come trusting in Him, praying to Him, worshiping Him, and you come asking for forgiveness and you come with a heart towards others of forgiveness. The new temple will be known by both receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until, they have, until he has something to forgive. It is not easy, but failing to forgive that reveals a tragic double standard in us. When others fail us, we tend to put the spotlight on their evil actions. And when we fail others, we tend to put the spotlight on our good intentions. Jesus takes forgiveness serious. Because that's at the heart of the message. He came here to give you a new heart so that you could believe and to grant you forgiveness of sins. That's what this new temple will be like. People known by trusting in Jesus in their trust, praying to Him, and forgiving. Receiving and granting. No false worship here. That's, that's kind of the idea. This new temple is not for false worship, but truth. And it only happens because Jesus came to redeem a people. And is it perfect here? No. Will it be? Yes. Do you know it will be? It will be. It will be made new. It will be transformed. So we've said today, the temple's empty, the temple's condemned, the temple's illustrated, and then we see this, the new temple established. It's coming, of, it's coming to fruition. It's coming before us. John 1.14 says, when Jesus came to be among us, he shows us that he is the true temple. 
And he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He was the temple, the true temple. Revelation 21-22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He's going to, there will be no need for a physical temple. The spiritual temple, Christ, the true temple is there. Guess what else? You know who the new temple is? Ephesians 2:19 and 20 through 22 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Guess what? This thing's become new. It's transformed. The old's past. The new has come. The new that has come is, is, is like shows up and you say at the heart of it is the new birth and forgiveness of sins. The new birth grants you to believe and for you to believe in faith, trusting God, praying to Him, and forgiving, experiencing forgiveness and granting forgiveness. It's kind of the only... Uh, I mean, R.C. Sproul said... The church is the only place that requires that you be a sinner for you to come. For you to come. So this morning, you don't want that old temple. Do you know that? That old temple had a lot of corruption. That old temple was temporary. That old temple didn't grant full forgiveness of sins. That old temple didn't give you a new heart. You, got, you get to be a part of the new the new that changes everything. The new that where you gather together with a people who have been transformed by God and they love each other. It's so much more beautiful and so much more wonderful. First Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Live as children who are children of light and be fruitful and faithful. The wonderful thing is, is Jesus didn't come in hopes that you would be fruitful. He came so that you would be fruitful. And that's what he's doing. And as we gather, we're reminded we are a spiritual temple together in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Give us an understanding, a clear understanding that we are a part of something so much more glorious than we could ever imagine. May our hearts leap with joy as we consider the wonders of the new covenant of this new transforming work that you've done, of the new heart that you've given your people, and, and, and the forgiveness of sins that comes with that also. May we live in light of that and bless each other in light of that. May we do that in our marriages, in our families, with our friendships, with those who go to church together here, and in anywhere we go. May the light of the glorious gospel, that message, be proclaimed in the way that we live, in the way that we forgive, in the way that we pray, in the way that we believe. 
In Christ's name, amen.